Hi, I'm Debbie Davies, and you're listening to Talking Blues. Let me begin by asking you, I believe your parents were both musicians, is that correct? Yeah, they were. Uh, my dad was a singer in Hollywood doing all the sessions, and my mom was a classical pianist who had taught in the school system until she, you know, had kids, and then she was a 50s mom, so she was a stay-at-home mom. How did their musicality influence you as to become a musician? Well, I heard music all the time. I mean, when my mom cleaned the house, she had pop radio on, and so I knew all the current songs. She would take a break and play her classical pieces. When my dad got back from the studios, he would put on the music, you know, when I was very young on the monaural unit, <laughs> and then later a stereo, and he always had the loudest and biggest stereo equipment, and so we, in one way or another, you know, there was just constant music going on. And, uh, you know, I got the, the obligatory piano lessons as a kid. Um, but then of course, gravitated towards guitar, like everybody my age, when we saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. It is amazing to me how many people were so influenced by that one moment. I know. And, uh, Number of interviews that I've done from the podcast, that moment has come up so often. It's unbelievable. I know. It's kind of trite now, but it's true. <laughs> but very important. And and you just think, well, if that moment didn't happen, what would have happened? Yeah, I don't think we would have had the 60s uh, music revelation, revolution or whatever it was. <laughs> revelation <laughs> and revolution. So when, when, you're, when you took piano lessons, did you did you love music or was it just something you did because your parents asked you to do it well I don't I didn't really love piano lessons I loved music I mean because I always in school was in whatever chorus or glee club there was so I sang I mean my mom and my sister and I used to harmonize to certain tunes you know uh, but I didn't take to the piano I mean my mom was so good at it and her hands were bigger and my hands kind of struggled to reach the octave and then I had first she taught me and then we had a really strict piano teacher and I just it wasn't my my instrument you know and I really believe that uh musicians have an instrument that they are innately meant to play some are blessed and have and can play many instruments you know but mm -hmm. piano just wasn't my muse so so when you saw the Beatles on tv did you at that moment say I want to play the guitar. I guess so, because right after that, right after it, I was begging my folks for a guitar and, uh, you know, they bought me an acoustic because that's what was allowed for girls back then. <laughs> right. I got the impression that your parents weren't, I mean, even though they're both musicians, I don't know. I, I got the impression that they, they didn't necessarily want you to pursue music. Is that correct? Well, I think they would have been fine if I was pursuing piano and really talented <laughs> at it. But, you know, this was a time when, um, like, a lot of parents thought rock and roll was evil. You know what I mean? The devil's music. And my folks, though they were musicians, were fairly conservative. And then 
the other side of that is, so if they had sons they probably wouldn't be crazy about a son wanting to playing electric guitar and wanting to join a rock band but you know it would have happened but right. for a girl daughter to do that it was unthinkable to them and to a lot of people you know during that particular cultural era you know it was a guitars were toys for boys and uh bands there weren't girls in bands you know and uh or playing any of those kind of instruments but you know rock or roll rock and roll band instruments it just wasn't happening i mean there was no support from schools or uh society or parents or anybody for uh women to become players in in you know electric type of bands so how how did you overcome those obstacles well, I just kind of, uh, you know, threw in the towel for that idea until I, you know, was out of high school and on my own and realizing that, wow, you know, this desire to play electric guitar didn't go away. And now I have a job and I can buy one for myself, <laughs> you know? Right. So, yeah, that's, I mean, which made me uh, a pretty late bloomer trying to learn that in, instrument in my 20s <clears throat> but um still i mean young enough to still embrace it so you, you kind of walked away from it for a little while well i couldn't get an electric guitar right so I, okay. I continued to play the acoustic but i mean it wasn't you only go so far unless you're totally going to embrace like the finger picking and all that but i just wanted to uh, play the kind of music I wanted to play. So just playing chords on the acoustic wasn't, I, I continued to do that, but then finally, you know, had my epiphany of like, yeah, I can still pursue the electric if I want to. So that's when I bought my first electric guitar and amp and just, you know, started. Tell me about buying that first guitar and amp. Where did you get it? What was it? Oh, okay. Well, I was up in Northern California and I was trying to go to college, but I had to work the whole time. So it was kind of both. I was doing both. <clears throat> and um, I was singing in a band, a blues band, and realized, you know, that I wanted, still wanted to play the guitar. So it was like a blues R&B band. And right. um, so my boyfriend and I went down to this local music store and I saw this pretty guitar. <laughs> And what it was, was a Gibson 330, uh, 1965, so or 64. And at the time it was, since this was the seventies, it was already a used guitar and it, there was no vintage craze going on yet. <laughs> Good so thing. Pretty cheap. And then I bought a, a like a Fender blackface uh, basement head or, with the uh, 15 inch speaker cabinet which people used for guitar back then. Right. So what made you decide on that guitar? Was it just because it was available and affordable or was it because it was a Gibson and did you have, like, did you, did you want that particular Gibson for a reason? I had no clue, honestly. I mean, <laughs> you know, I'm sure the guy at the store was saying something like, well, this is a good guitar. No, I, I it was a new world for me. I wasn't in that world yet. This was my uh, doorway into it buying the instrument. And then I started uh, just sitting around with guys that knew how to play and picking up little tiny things. And I uh, 
subscribe to Guitar Player Magazine, and then they would have tons of information about electric guitars, guitar players, and they had little lessons in the back. So, you know, I just picked at it and, and then, you know, started learning a little here, a little there, and practiced anything I could. And um, what the guys who could play told me was, well, you have to learn to you know, take licks off of records because that's how you learn to solo and learn the cool licks. So, you know, I just started doing that back in the day. You know, it's where you move the needle a little bit back and forth until you get that lick and then continue on. So it's a very slow, uh, painstaking process probably for the first year, you know, and then it started clicking and I just kept going for it, you know, and I just anything I could practice, anything I could learn, I just kept doing it. So I know you grew up listening to Ray Charles and you had some sort of connection to his music, but when did the blues come into your life? Uh, it was after I moved up north. Although the thing is, as a child, even with my classical piano lessons, um, this teacher did a little, little segment on boogie woogie piano. And I realized that that's all I was interested in. I mean, mm. I just sucked that up and was doing that constantly to the chagrin of the classical pianist teacher, you know. So I was, and I loved all the Ray Charles stuff that my dad had. So I gravitated. And then, you know, when Eric Clapton, when I first heard him with the Blues Breakers, I mean, that was the style, that was what I loved. And then Eric, you know, in articles, would cite all the American blues guitar players as his influence. So um, myself and a lot of other baby boomers, it was kind of that journey working backwards, you know, realizing, right. oh, that's the sound. Oh, it's blues. That's what I dig. So then I knew that by the time I started doing the electric. And luckily for me, the town I lived in had a blues club in it and, uh, it was, you know, art blues artists on the circuit, touring artists played there. So I would, you know, go listen to these artists sit at their feet at night. And then during the day, you know, you know, just be practicing whatever I could. So, and plus I was still trying to go to school and work a job, but, you know, just doing it whenever <laughs> I could. What were you going to school for? What was plan B? Plan B was psychology, which, you oh. know, really big back then all the social sciences uh were popular then whereas you know later on it became business classes which is probably a lot smarter especially for a musician but yeah so and you know it took me seven years because i was picking my way through college uh, i actually did get the degree just to do it but by that time i was just you know completely committed to uh being a guitar player okay so how did that come about at what point did you think this is what I want to pursue. Well, I guess, um, you know, as soon as I started on electric, I mean, that was my dream. And um, I also realized that there's no way I wanted to work in the field of psychology. I mean, you know, <laughs> it, it, you know, because at that level, if you just get a BA, you're, you're sort of like just at the uh, changing bedpan level, you know, it's right. like in that field, you've sort of got to get you know, like a master's or a doctorate to have even a decent job. And really what struck me was that when I was hanging out with musicians, this was my tribe. The people in my classes that were all mm -hmm. going to be serious about, th those were not my tribe. 
So I just, you know, it was kind of part of my epiphany that I went, no, I'm a musician. This is what I have to do. And so at this point, when you finish school, where are you at musically? Are you playing a lot? Are you doing it all? Are you, where, oh, no, I'm just, I'm just getting just to beginning. the point. Yeah, I'm getting to the point where I actually can be in a band. But I'm playing mostly rhythm. You know, there's a lead guitar player. And right. then as I started expanding on my lead, you know, they would let me take little solos until then myself and another guy formed our own band. And the same thing, like he was doing most of the leads. And as I got better, I just kept putting leads in there. We actually had a, another singer too. So it just kind of evolved. Eventually she quit and I became the singer and I just kept playing my guitar and then um, eventually formed another band just under my name. So it was okay, just so a progression, you know, it was a gradual progression. And then I worked that band uh, throughout Northern California. And then uh, let's say, I, I think after playing about seven years, I felt, um, and I worked with a few other artists too, I felt strong enough to try and move back to LA and see if I could compete in a larger pond, if you know what I mean. I do, but I'm, I'm not totally clear as to the difference between the two scenes. Because there's a lot of great musicians who come out of the San Francisco area. Um, but was L.A. considered to be the higher level musicianship? Is that is that correct? Uh, yeah, because the recording industry is here. Right. OK. Um, but also maybe because I it was in my mind since I grew up here with that, you know, professional community my dad was in. And I also was hearing about a bunch of um, really cool blues bands that were based out of Southern California. And I felt like there was a scene. I mean, there were a lot of harp players that were really big back then, like James Harmon and William Clark and um, Rod Piazza. They all had really established, you know, blues bands. And then of course, Bonnie Raitt had a blues band and James, you know, John Mayall, Albert Collins. All these artists lived in Southern California. And right. so, you know, I'm sure I wanted to kind of get back down there too, because that's where my family was. So, you know, I just felt like it was the right thing to do at the time. I felt like I had kind of exhausted the Bay Area because really what was going on um, was that the, the, the blues clubs were all kind of at that time turning into top 40 clubs. Everything was just changing a bit. I mean, there were still uh, some blues clubs in the city itself, but I didn't live in the city. I lived north of it, you know? Right. So all of those clubs in Marin and, and Sonoma counties were uh, kind of switching, except for just maybe a couple, you know what I mean? But a couple is not enough to really uh, do your thing. In fact, I even uh, did top 40 at the end there in Northern California because I wanted to keep playing. You know, I had to keep learning as a player. And so that was quite an experience because you're learning uh, songs in so many different genres and <laughs> you're you're trying to cop like really great guitar players solos, you know. So that was it. That really expanded my knowledge on the instrument also. So when you move back to the L.A. area, what was the first thing you noticed? Like, I, I understand you went to weekly jams 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. There was one in particular in the San Fernando Valley, because at the time I was flopping on my sister's floor. She and a, a roommate, you know, had a townhouse. And so I lived in the in the living room on the floor for a while. And so I started just going to jams and I found this one that was kind of like a celebrity jam. And what I mean by that is that when touring artists, you know, bands from like Bonnie Raitt's band and Albert Collins band and even Michael Jackson's band, John Mayall's band, when they were off the road, this is where they would go just to work out, you know? So that's why it was, to me, it was like a celebrity jam. And then other people that wanted to sit in, you kind of really had to earn it. So I would just be at the jam, I think for the first couple of months, wanting to sit in. And then I'd finally get to sit in like uh, at the very end of the night, you know, like quarter to two. And then as I became, as they realized like that I was serious, you know, and could play, Gradually, I was able to get up and jam, you know, in the prime time of the night, play with a lot of different players. And um, I met Coco Montoya, who was touring with John Mayall. Mm -hmm. And um, he told me one night that John's wife, Maggie, was putting together an all-girl band, uh, blues and R&B, and holding auditions. So I thought, because I was like playing with whatever little bands I could besides going to this jam. And none of them were like satisfactory to me because none of them were blues. So this sounded like a dream come true. I went up to John's house and auditioned and got the gig with Maggie. And we had this band that started working up all kinds of blues and R&B chestnuts. And uh, also then we started writing our own tunes. And... We did a lot of gigs around the LA area. And then we also ended up doing some tours as the opening act for John Mayall. And we recorded a bunch of our original stuff and other things and tried to get a record deal, but it was just kind of too early. They weren't really uh, into too many women, you know, thinking right. the record labels weren't really signing that kind of stuff yet. So I wonder when you were attending the jams initially even before they let you play what did you get out of that experience what did you learn from watching these people at that jam well I always felt like I was constantly learning I would learn like wow I want to I want to expand in that genre because uh Calif Southern California had a lot more jump swing than Northern California so it made me realize uh there was this guy Steve Samuels that played upside down and backwards because he only had half of an arm on his hmm. left arm. But he still, he like picked, you know, with a, with a callus on his elbow. He picked great guitar and he did a lot of jump swing that was incredible. And I was like, oh, I got to get more into that. And then there were two other guitar players that played left-handed upside down and backwards. <laughs> and Greg Wright, who was... Uh, Michael Jackson's guitar player at the time, he was fantastic and he would get up and play and then Coco Montoya. And I was like, what is this, an LA thing? Everybody played <laughs> upside down and backwards. But it was just a coincidence. So, so how easy is it to steal licks from people playing upside down? Like, is it? It took me a while. I mean, when I, I ended up having a relationship with Coco for eight years and, you know, <laughs> at some point, 
my brain just clicked and I could completely watch him and play and, <laughs> and see everything upside down. Wow. Really, really clear. But it, it just takes a while for your brain to sort of uh, do that mirror thing, you know, where it refocuses. And then I wonder at that moment, if I was to me, if I had met you then and said, what is it that you want to do? What would that have been? Well, I certainly wanted to be a bona fide blues player. I wanted to right. be in a band playing the blues. And after, you know, I had done that for a number of years, then my thing was, I would, it would just be a dream come true if I could be in a band with one of my blues idols. Right, which you were able to accomplish. And somehow that dream came true, which is just amazing. Yeah, that would have been what I was, you know, real. That would have been my goal at that time. So this we're talking about you joining with Albert Collins. Yes. How did that happen? Well, you know, being with uh, Coco and we were touring with the Mayalls. And so um, Coco had played drums for Albert right. Collins in the 70s. And so they were friends. So one night, the Coco and I started doing little bar gigs in between the Mayall tours because we had the exact same schedule. So he invited Albert to come down one night and, you know, see us in this little bar and Albert came down and then he sat in and everybody at the little bar was blown away. Oh my God, Albert called, <laughs> you know, but Albert, I guess he, he liked what I was playing and whatever, but he just invited Coco and I over for a barbecue at his place he and his wife so we just started doing that we just started mostly hanging out you know barbecue and whatever partying and um what happened was that there was a point in time that came that uh albert had a new manager that was kind of revamping his band for a variety of reasons so there would be you know he, i think he was thinking who you know of getting another guitar player or whatever so at one point I was still playing with Maggie. He said he invited me to come up and sit in with him at the San Francisco Blues Festival. So that was on a Sunday. I had a Saturday night gig with Maggie. Then I drove to the airport, caught a red eye, flew to San Francisco, no sleep, made my way over to the festival grounds and then just hung out until you know it was time for albert to go on and hanging out there uh robert cray was hanging out too because albert said oh i'm gonna have one of my sons sit in tonight because hmm. he considered robert cray and albert collin i mean uh, coco montoya his sons you know so i was like trying not to freak out because now i'm going to be on the <laughs> festival stage standing between albert collins and robert cray but, you know, I just, I just overcame whatever fears I had, because this is what I wanted to do. And I just did it. And perhaps Albert was trying to see if I could exist in that situation and under that pressure. Um, because it was a couple of months later, Maggie and the band kind of broke up, discouraged, you know, not getting a record deal or anything. And then I got a call from... Albert's manager, he said, uh, Albert Collins wants to know if you'd 
tour with him, join his band, whatever. And I was like, whoa, yeah. And he goes, and we're leaving tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> so it was just jump on the tour with Albert Collins. And the rest is history. Wow. So a couple of things come to mind. When, when Maggie's band decided to disband, that must have been kind of heartbreaking. Well, you know, yeah, it was a bummer, but, you know, it's, things are coming for a while, you know. At one point, you know, there was a big rift between Maggie and the drummer, and the drummer quit, and then we got a new drummer, then we had to get a new bass player. The band was never quite the same, mm. and, you know, the v band was very, we were all serious about, you know, being professionals and getting into the business and playing for a living. And when it just seemed like this wasn't going to happen, you know, we weren't going to get the rec to make a record and all that stuff. You know, it was a drag, but it was also just something that I realized, and I think the other gals did too, that this is, this is just what you do. You know, you have to move to another situation that's going to, um, help you to keep being a professional player. Okay, so I don't know how to phrase this, but you initially talked about how difficult it was to get kind of um, accepted being a girl playing guitar. Right. Now you join a band and it's pretty well a female band. Yes. What What do you think in terms of that? Like, is that, I'm not sure if I'm what I'm getting at here, but, but um, is that an advantage to start off with an all-female band, or is there any difference because you're just playing? Well, for me, it was it was uh, you know, there were two things that enticed me in that band. One is that both Maggie and John, especially John, had high profiles, mm -hmm. so the opportunity to play in that situation, you know, thinking of like a career thing, was very enticing. Plus the music they were going to do, blues and R&B, you know, it was had nothing to do with, for me, whether if it was an all-girl band or not. It was those elements that I wanted to follow. Um, this was like the early to mid-80s, and right. there was a craze for the, there were the first two all-girl bands ever, you know, the Go-Go's had mm -hmm. all this success. And so everywhere, all over the place, girls were forming bands, you know, oh, all-girl band we can actually get recognition so there it was a thing that was happening I mean I was had been playing with a couple of other all-girl bands also that just had gigs you know just to be gigging um right one was a like cover band and one was a country band and you know it, it was just a craze it was never my goal or end all and you know I, I eventually played in another all-girl band too um the problem is that, you know, there's there's always been a, a smaller gene pool to pull from when you're putting together an all-girl band. In other words, you've narrowed right. down uh, the people who can audition for the gig. So um, instead of it being organic, like, let's just find the right players. Um, and that also would mean then the, the right personality that everybody's going to get along together. Um, when you calculatingly form like an all-girl band, uh, you run the risk of like, not everybody's gonna get along, you know, and that can happen in any band. Right, right. But it seemed to be a little bit more prevalent in the all-girl situation. Interesting. 
But I, I wonder if, do you think there's a difference between being in a all-girls band versus not being in an all-girls band? Yeah. <laughs> yeah? Like, seriously, a huge difference between the two. I don't know if there's a huge difference. And I haven't been in an all-girl band that I particularly felt, you know, a real kinship in. So, mm. I, you know, and I know some women have been. So I think it's probably different for everybody. Um, I feel like my experience and all of the music I've wanted to play, it's all men who've played it. So I just feel like that's kind of my world. So when you joined Albert Collins' band, what, what was your confidence level like of, of your own playing? Fairly, fairly good. You know, I mean, I was still aware that there was a lot of things I wanted to, you know, work on, improve, learn. But I felt confident on stage and, and I felt confident backing Albert and that I understood blues and could play all of that. Right. So when you are given like such short notice before you go on tour, and I know that Albert Collins is a legend and I presume you probably knew a lot of his stuff, but did you know all his stuff? Like how comfortable were you to go on the road and do a full, full evening show with his material? I had certainly listened to him a lot. And the thing is, I didn't totally know the show, but everybody else in the band did. So I just knew that I had to go through that learning curve, you know, and, um, it, you know, it's just I had I kind of like would lay back or, or I'd be playing things. I mean, there were times that the trumpet player who he was the leader of the horn section, there were three horns, he turned around and, and yelled at me, you know, don't play everything there, you know, and that's just kind of <laughs> do this, do that. Right. So that's just how it was, you know, and I just accepted that. I mean, this is what I had to go through if I wanted to, uh, you know, be a viable player in that band. I, and what you do with a traditional blues guy like Albert, you, you keep your eye on him because you never know what he's going to do or what he's going to call. So there's a lot of improvisation involved. And I've always been an improvisational player who can listen and turn on a dime. That's kind of, you know, I can do that. So, you know, obviously the more I toured with them, the more confident I got playing the show because then I totally knew the show. Albert, I don't know if he gets the credit that he deserves. I mean, I just think he was so amazing. Can you maybe talk to me about how you viewed him and his playing and his music? Well, of course, I idolized him as a player mm -hmm. and a person. I mean, I think at the end of his life, he was starting to get the recognition because um, he was a guest, I think, on the David Letterman show or the Tonight Show, whichever one, you know, right. he was starting to get guesting things like that, which is obviously giving you the ability to reach a worldwide audience. And let's see, uh, George Thorogood loved Albert Collins and, and George Thorogood was doing these farm aid giant mm -hmm. concerts at the time. And he would, he brought Albert out as a guest. So, you know, the powers that be in the music business were starting to really, uh, you know, pull Albert out into the mainstream um, among blues artists. So, but he, you know, he, that was shortly before, as I say, 
you know, he passed away. So unfortunately, but uh, among, you know, guitar players and blues players, he's he's a superstar. One of those people that it's that one note and you know, it's him. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And he was a, he was a, you know, amazing human being, too. What would have been the greatest lesson you learned from the time with him? Well, that's, that's a good question, because a lot of people uh, say, so did you learn to play being in Albert's band? Is that where you got the blues? And it's kind of like, well, no, I had, to be, I had to be a player in order to get the gig. Right. But what for me, when I first joined Albert's band, um, it was such it was the most powerful band that I'd ever played with. You know, it was that kind of blues. It was it was they played with muscle. So I learned that kind of playing. You know, I learned that kind of blues strength and approach. Um, but the rest of what I really learned from Albert was grace under pressure. Because a lot of things can happen when you're on the road, you know, mm -hmm. in a blues band. And I learned a lot about, from touring in the South, the aspects of uh, racism that still are really strong down there. And a lot of situations, you know, I, I just was able to observe Albert just keep his cool and have grace with all, a lot of people that were trying to give him trouble. And that was amazing to me, especially to see that that's what a band leader does. You know, that's what a somebody does. And that, you know, sometimes the bus would break down, all of these things would happen. And Albert, you know, no matter what was going on, he just approached everything with grace and calm. And that was probably the biggest lesson as somebody who wanted to tour with their own band that I learned from Albert. So. At what point during that time did you think, I want my own band? I want to go out as my own leader? Well, while I was touring with Albert, you know, when we were not on the road, I had put my own band together. Um, you know, local people, and I would book local gigs, but they were really good players. So mm -hmm. I, and I had always kind of had either my band with Coco, but before that, my own band. So was something I was kind of always doing and I had you know a little handful of originals that I had written and stuff like that so it was on my mind but um I I also was thinking oh I can't ever leave Albert because that was the ride I was on but mm -hmm. even Albert you know at in our third year of being together was talking to me about you know doing my own thing and you know he would say Look at how well Bonnie Raitt's doing. You can do that. Of course, which I didn't really believe because I think so much of her, she's like way above everybody. But um, he was, Albert was very encouraging too. So it just sort of, it kind of just became time. You know, it felt like time to do it. Okay, so when it comes time and you decide to put together your own band and start to establish a name for yourself, what's the, what's the biggest challenge you had at that point? What did you have to overcome in order to do that? Uh, finances. <laughs> yeah, leaving, yeah. leaving a band that was helping me make a living, but that hadn't made enough to where I could save money. You know, it was blues. It wasn't big mm -hmm. money. And, um, so that was a big challenge because here's the thing I knew I needed to launch my own touring career was a van. 
and uh, you know, I needed to invest in a touring vehicle. And uh, that just happened to be not too long after I'd left Albert, I had little, uh, I was doing little side jobs and doing my little own band, whatever, but it was very hard to, you know, come up with the uh, rent money, shall we say. Mm-hmm. And that's when I got this off the wall offer from an artist named Fingers Taylor to go on tour as part of the opening act on a Jimmy Buffett tour. And you toured with with Fingers Taylor for like three months, correct? Yeah, we did. I mean, I I didn't want to do that at first because I thought, Jimmy Buffett, I mean, this is not my kind of music. I'm a blues player, you know. But he was like, well, Jimmy, you know, I've been with Jimmy for 20 years and Jimmy's offering me the, you know, to put together whatever kind of, you know, opening band I want, and I'm going to do blues. And so Fingers, his little dream band was an all-girl band behind him. So that's how I ended up. He said he was going all over the country, you know, trying to farm the best female players, blues players on each instrument. So we had gals from all over the country in the band. And, you know, when he... Uh, he we talked a bunch on the phone because I was not an easy sell but then you know when I found out the kind of money we were going to make I was like okay that's better money than I've ever made in my life and if I save all my money that I can from that tour I might be able to buy my touring van so that was my goal and I went out on the road with the Buffett people Okay, so what was that experience like, other than making the money, but just just a, a different audience base, being an opening act for a Jimmy Buffett show? What was that like? It was wild and crazy. I mean, Jimmy <laughs> Buffett's fans, the you know parrot heads. Parrot heads, yeah. Oh my God! I mean, it was an all shed tour, you know, across the United States for three months, um, which means if you know what the sheds are, it's like you know, they're the outdoor covered dome with a big, wait, wait. they're all identical as far as like, even when you go inside backstage, they're, they're all laid out the same big parking lot in the back, the tour buses load up. So we were on the road with, uh, let's see, three tour buses and two semi trucks. Hmm. So, you know, Buffett's folks were in these two really high-end Prevo tour buses and we were in a uh, I think it was a Silver Eagle bus it happened to be Waylon Jennings old bus so and then there the semis carried like not only all the instruments you know and amps and the gear but also the whole setup for props for the stage so every night you know they'd set up they'd get there really early and set all that stuff up and the schedule was identical we played five nights a week You'd get to the venue at two in the afternoon. Um, you'd do these sound checks. Then they'd have like a complete meal for everybody. And then you'd just hang out until showtime. So it was a lot of waiting around, a lot of the same, the same every day. And then um, the audience was somewhat still kind of filtering in when we were playing. And they weren't necessarily that interested in what we were doing because they were there to see Jimmy Buffett. So, you know, we did our thing every night, sometimes to 
not too much attention, but a lot of people were seated. And if you know the parrot heads, it's so crazy, man. They all come <laughs> in costumes and yeah. they all bring blow up toys and beach balls. And they're throwing all that stuff onto the stage when you're playing. So, you know, I got into like kicking beach balls back into the audience and, you know, looking at costumes and laughing. It was very entertaining while we were on stage. For me, very entertaining. And then Jimmy would come out at the end of our set in this big fake airplane thing. And, you know, it was just wild. And we would all smile at him and then we'd go off and he would do his set. And then after he was done, you loaded right back into the bus and head to the next venue. So you'd get to a, maybe a hotel in the region, maybe like three in the morning, or it could be even six in the morning, slept with whatever you could do, and then went to the venue again at two o'clock in the afternoon. So it was just, it was a circular same sameness kind of thing, you know. Did that prepare you for your solo career? Well, not really. I mean, we, <laughs> but it got you your, your van. Everything prepares you because every all, the more you're on stage and the more uh, situations that you deal with and then continue playing is everything is making you a more and more experienced and stronger player, you know, and you're learning more and more types of material and songs. So it's all it's all accumulative, you know. I mean, in my mind, I thought, oh, this is preparing me for when I start playing, you know, 22,000 seater places. But little did I know was this was going to be it. <laughs> this was right. the big time. So, you know, because that tour that year was the th one of the top three grossing tours in the nation, along with uh, the Rolling Stones and the Grateful Dead. Wow. So this this was it. This was, you know, it would have prepared me for more of the same if more of the same had come. Right. But obviously you've done a lot of major festivals. Oh, yeah. So you've done big gigs. Oh, I've done big gigs. I think rarely have they been like to 20,000, 25,000 people. You know, blues right. festivals are not that big. Although with Albert, we did play that big bike rally in Sturgis. Hmm. tons of i don't know how many thousands are there but yeah so and the great thing about the blues is you know from night to night it's different i mean you might play a festival one day and then you might be in the tiniest club the next you know where you're set up on the floor and it was even like that when i was out with albert so the the variety in the blues is you know something that really always kept me going because uh you know, I, I didn't do well with sameness, you know. I also had a really hard time in the Jimmy Buffett band because, and nothing against any of those people. I mean, all professional, nice people. But coming off of a tour with Albert Collins, I was so used to being with, you know, Black artists and playing to mixed audiences and just being in that world, being in Albert's world. That was really um something I love that real blues world with people that were you know mixed ethnicity and very soulful things and you know going to after hours fish fries with Albert's buddies and you know that was my world and this was all of a sudden white corporate America world you know mm. both on the road and the audiences and it was um 
was hard for me. It was a cultural shock and I didn't feel like it was my world. So that's kind of where that was at. Okay, so well, you talked about playing different size of venues from small clubs to large concerts. How do you how do you adjust to that? How do you work yourself up for either? Yeah, well, it takes a lot more to work yourself up to, for a festival stage to me because uh, there are challenges hearing the band a lot of times right. out of doors and uh, the instruments are separated and maybe there's wind, you know, so you yeah. don't, it's harder to hear and there's a much larger group of people to reach. So we put out maximum energy in through in the entire set that we play, you know, you're hoping you can hear everybody and you're staying together. I used to always have the uh, snare drum in my monitor so I could, you know, totally be tight with the drums, you know. Um, smaller clubs, uh, it's kind of neat because you're playing to the audience that's right there. You can feel them and see them. Um, and then you can pace your show, you know, you can have come down and do stuff that's a little more, you know, slow and intimate. And so you're sort of catching your breath uh, during the whole evening where you're not doing that on stage at a festival. And yet the festival can be a, such a adrenaline rush. You know, I mean, you can get off stage and just be so high from the whole thing, you know. And mm -hmm. then also at the festival, you're there with all of your other cohorts. You know, you get to mingle with all of your other players who are on the road that you don't always see because you're all on the road in different directions. And oftentimes then you're invited up to sit with them on stage. So very exciting, you know, the, and sometimes in the clubs, you know, you'd have to play so much longer that by the end of the night, you know, especially if people had left, you might start feeling fatigue because you're not getting as much energy from the audience and you've played for much longer time than at a festival. Interesting. So you went solo around 1993. Yes. And then within a number of years, like within five, six years, you had gotten a WC Handy Award. Right. Which is pretty, sh I mean, it seems like a short period of time. I don't know if it seemed like a short period of time to you, but when you set off to do your own thing and become a solo artist, what goals did you have for yourself and, and how did you go about attaining those goals? Um, honestly, I didn't have any particular goals. You know, I didn't know anything about the music business. I was just totally into being a musician. I was not really hip to the Blues Music Foundation or anything. I mean, honestly, my whole world was like becoming a better player, you know, and music. So my goal was at the time, you know, to have a band, have good players and have gigs and, you know, write good songs. So, um, you know, and back then the scene was such that there were a lot of indie labels right. and, you know, the record companies were making money. So there was a, you know, a real um, network of opportunities if you, be, if you got signed to a label and an agency. So that sort of was my goal. I had achieved my goal. I just wanted to keep playing, you know. Did you know? I mean, did you at at the point where you said, "Okay, I'm going to be a solo artist." How difficult was it, or how long did it take until you felt like you hit your stride? Well, since I'd already been, you know, I'd already had my own band, 
uh, mm -hmm. and I'd already been on the road. Um, when I started out on my own, um, there was a lot of things I already knew how to do and knew about. Um, certainly the biggest change was touring with Albert Collins. We were like headlining festivals. And now with my own band, I was opening festivals. So that was that was different, you know, but and yet I was doing my own music. So that was the payoff, you know. Um, it all it was just all something I was wanting to do and I was in it. And um, I had watched two band leaders, you know, been on the road with both John Mayall and Albert Collins, who approached touring. It, they were the opposites. So I could take what I thought I needed from both of them, you know, and create my own style of being a band leader and uh, touring. Can you elaborate on them being opposites? What do you mean by that? Well, John was a totally uh, organized, you know, <laughs> Okay. understood business. He created set lists, you know, he knew exactly, he, he put them like under the bands, you know, in under their doors in the motel you know, as soon as he'd written the set list for the night. So everybody had a copy. Uh, he had rehearsals before he went on the road. The band knew ex the songs exactly. Um, you know, uh, he knew, he was totally hip to all the th things about business and the music business, you know, very on time, very this and that. With Albert, you know, I mean, it was kind of like, oh, you know, he didn't feel like really getting out on the road too early you know he was right. sleeping or have a real uh, slow nice meal you know uh, so we would uh sometimes get to a venue like just a few minutes before we were supposed to be on stage so that, you know not always but that could right. be like we had that panic like oh let's go so uh and he didn't have a set list he played what he felt and that's the thing, you never knew what was coming that night. So you kept your eye on Albert, which is a much more traditional uh, blues way to do thing. And there was never a rehearsal, nothing like that. So, you know, and it was a party band. So, you know, after the show, there'd always, you'd go out and party and do that. But for John Mayall's thing, it was like, go back to the motel. Anybody who wanted to party could do whatever they wanted. But, right. you know, you didn't have transportation to it. So, uh, yeah, they were opposite like that. Albert was the loose, you know, feeling it kind of guy. And John was the organized, here's what's happening kind of guy. So, but, you know, I, I both of those, uh, you know, I definitely was somebody then who, who wanted to work from set lists and, you know, organize that and certainly organize the travel and the times I wanted to get there. But then there was like a real looseness and blues thing that I wanted to do on stage too. And, you know, so that that's, I took from both of them. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then in 2010, you won the Blues Music Awards Coco Taylor Award. Tell me what that meant to you. That really meant a lot because Coco Taylor was a friend out on the road. I mean, when I was with Albert, we did a lot of gigs with Coco Taylor and in fact, we were doing sort of almost a double tour for a while uh, up the West Coast with Coco mm -hmm. and her band and stayed in the same motels on the days off and hung out. And, you know, I'd listen to Pops tell his stories. And Coco and I, a lot of times, if we got to a festival and, and she was on it, too, 
we were like sort of the only gals. So obviously, you know, you gravitate towards each other, not to mention that I'm just such a fan of her music. I mean, some of her albums are like in my, you know, uh, top group of favorite blues albums that I still want to listen to. And so getting that award was very meaningful and also unexpected. So that was that was quite a quite an occasion. How have you dealt with the last year, year and a half? Has that been difficult? Well, yes and no. I mean, uh, I had re relocated a few years ago out to the West Coast, so I was still, uh, you know, reforming my whole thing. So I wasn't ever working as much as I had been, you know, during those really strong touring years. Um, but I was just starting to get a good looking calendar when COVID hit. So uh, the reason it wasn't as devastating for me, because I knew we were all in the same boat, you know, right. all the musicians were out of work. So I couldn't really like feel sorry for myself or like it was affecting me. And the other thing that really struck me was I'm so grateful that something like this didn't happen during all of my younger touring years. You know, I was lucky that no you know nothing stopped me from touring for so all that time you know and so how I was thinking was I feel really bad for the younger musicians you know that were mm -hmm. just starting to get off the ground and promoting an album and this hit. So musically did you keep yourself busy in any way over the last 16 18 months? Oh yeah I mean um, I've had students and a lot of them trance to like zoom and and uh you know facebook messenger so i've kept uh you know teaching and i've kept so i i'm hands on my instrument you know right are you doing a lot of writing uh not not really songwriting per se i've got some instrumentals that i've been writing you know i've been oh. more just sort of getting into my guitar again i just sort of uh been starting to work on some areas that I still want to expand in, you know, playing wise. So I've been more into that. When you look back on an amazing career that you've had, um, how do you how do you look back on it? <sighs> well, sometimes I got to pinch myself. Wow, did I really get to do that? I really did that. Um, it's all sort of a musician's life. That's how I see it, you know. And for me as a musician, personally, it was kind of about continued musical growth and then continued attempts at growing up, which can be hard for a musician, you know. So, um, but I, I just see it as, as a beautiful uh, sort of legacy of, of fantastic opportunities and blessings. I'm curious, and, and if you don't want to answer this, you don't have to, but how did your parents take to you becoming a musician? Well, you know, at first it was like worrisome to them, you know, because they kind of pictured me in college, you know, going for something else. Um, right. But uh, they didn't have the finances to put me through college at that time, my dad being a musician, you know, so yeah. uh, who's, you know, his whole career world was not what it was by that time. Uh, he was, you know, from a different era of music that was not as popular when mm -hmm. he you know when I was getting out of high school and such so 
Uh, but they were, you know, that was their focus. And they kept saying, but you could do this with, with music. You could do that, you know. But I think by the time I made my second record, they were both totally, like, on board. And, you know, my mom always loved to come to my shows, particularly, because she's just, you know, she used to like to dance, and she loved all that. So, yeah, they, they you know, totally, you know, realized that, oh, this is what's happening. And Thank you so much for this conversation. I, as I said, I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time, and I'm glad that we got a chance to do this. Thank you, Mako. It's really sweet of you to want to hear some of my story. Thank you so much.